This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Fall of Delta Green for ex-military players. Toronto Tow Truck Wars. World-breaking words. And Umwamwa. You've perfected the dosi dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people ages six and up in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The thump of dice and the rattle of miniatures and uh, the uh, gaze of... uh, Wait a minute, that's not... That's not Peter Frampton Comes Alive. That's like a late 60s Stoneworks record, the one with uh, painted black on it, because it turns out that the uh, gaming hut is headed to the Vietnam conflict uh, due to a request from beloved Patreon backer Manfred, uh, who asks, uh, Ken, my friends are ex-military. I am not. How do I run a Fall of Delta Green campaign 100% in Vietnam, blending non-Euclidean monstrous horror and battlefield horror. So this is uh, a classic question of player expertise exceeding uh, GM expertise. And uh, do we want to start out with uh, giving the classic bit of advice on that, which is uh, use the player's expertise uh, to your advantage? Yeah, I mean, this is, as you say, it's a form of that classic question. And by and large, yes, if you are running a game of Egyptology and all of your you know, mummy fighting and all of your players are Egyptologists or you're running a game at the University of Chicago on any topic. The odds are that one of your players is going to know a lot more about it than you. So yeah, I got used very early to use the player as the resource and even to the point, depending on the player of letting them co-create and saying, this seems like this should be a thing that happens. What is workable within the world of Egypt? Where is there a lost pyramid that we could go after? What Breton folklore might be apropos to the, the, the fairies as described in Ars Magica, whatever it happens to be. And you can bring them in early as consultants, or you can do it during the game when you say, um, uh, you've seen a, a shimmering flicker on the water similar to, Take it away, Daniel. And then Daniel unloads on Breton folklore about a shimmering water phase, and then off you go again. That's the general standard methodology for any of these uh, sorts of situations. A situation where literally all of your players out-specialize you in something is maybe a little bit trickier. And I would argue military culture, by and large, leads to people who are not just proud of their military knowledge and proud of the experience through which they gained that knowledge, but also not 
contemptuous, but just a little bit knowledgeable of their superiority in this field to lifelong civilians such as myself. Mildly eye-rolly, perhaps? Mildly eye-rolly, I think, is is probably a good baseline expectation to set, that you will be eye-rolled. Uh, and this happens because so much of military culture, no matter how many war movies you've seen, no matter how many books you've read, is a lived experience. And it's very much like describing camping. If you've never gone camping, except you did it for two years and maybe people were shooting at you. Um, it's a whole different type of life than civilian life. That being literally the point of it. And so you will find yourself putting a foot wrong in places that you absolutely did not expect. So, there are very arcane rules about when you can wear a hat or in military talk, a cover and around whom you can wear it. And if you're describing a scene and someone's got a hat on and you say they're wearing a standard Kepi and then someone's going to say, but I thought you said there was an officer present or whatever. And then it's like, Oh my God, now I'm in the mystical land of hat. And so <laughs> by and large, the thing to do is at very early on, uh, get the players to buy into the fact that you're still the GM, you're still driving the world, but that they should feel free to non-obtrusively and as eye-rolling free as they can manage, uh, perhaps you appeal to their superior sense of discipline that they garnered in a similar experience, um, to add as minimally intrusive a correction as they can manage. And if it doesn't really matter... If the fact that one guy's wearing a cover when he shouldn't is tangential to the story, just let it go. Just say, oh, I must have been mistaken. Of course, he's not wearing a hat. There's an officer on deck or whatever. And then off you go towards the actual story, which was not, as it turns out, about the one guy wearing a hat. Right? Right. And so uh, with that in mind, are there specific resources now that you've established that uh, movies and books are uh, insufficient, at least they'll get you to pose the right questions to your team of technical advisors slash players. Uh, what would you direct people to beyond, of course, what's in Fall of Delta Green itself in order to uh, prepare for uh, something that the players are going to be able to meaningfully contribute to? What, what are our starting points here? I mean, again, unless you're running uh, the game for very old players, they don't have Vietnam experience. And even Iraq or Afghanistan were entirely different wars in a lot of respect from uh, Vietnam. So you have uh, the opportunity to read a lot of, I would say, especially if you're focusing on combat, I would, uh, as opposed to special operations units, um, I would read a memoir of combat, and there are lots of them. Uh, Mark Bowton, the great uh, sort of military journalist, has written a big book on the Battle of Huey, which I think is probably uh, valuable. There's a ton of books about the Tet Offensive. There's books about Kaysan, Yadrong. Uh, I would read those for the specific ways in which Vietnam was uh, its own experience, its own slice of hell. And again, Everyone's Vietnam, you know, a guy who was a, a, a remf in Saigon for the whole war, it will have had a different war than a guy who was out on the, you know, front lines of, uh, of a Marine, uh, long range, uh, recon team that these would have been different experiences. And so again, you should have some idea 
going in, if only by the type of characters your players have made up, of what kind of a story you're telling. Are you telling stories of basically rear area guys who are going to have a nasty surprise when Tet happens, just like they did? Or are you telling a story of guys who are, you know, a standard, uh, you know, combat unit, and then you have to figure out what division they were in and, and what parts of the war that that division would be in? Or are they going to be more standard Delta Green type Mac V saw guys who can be dropped into any corner of Indochina, including the ones you're not allowed to go to technically to fight monsters. And I think that probably most fall of Delta green games that are entirely consumed in uh, Indochina are going to wind up being sort of Mac V SOG or other special operations teams. And again, there are memoirs by guys who did that and you can familiarize yourself with the specific sorts of military challenges they met. For example, in the Brellis connection, the upcoming mega campaign uh, for Fall of Delta Green, there is a scene or a long chunk of, a, of an adventure that takes place in the Rung Sat, which is a big, basically a mangrove swamp, uh, only much worse, uh, uh, south of Saigon. It's, a, it's an enormous mud flat, uh, fundamentally the size of like Maryland. And so there are some memoirs of what specifically it was like to be in the rung sat that I attempted to introduce into the, into the background so that you at least have some idea of what you're role playing. But rung sat is like a, almost a perfect distillation of everyone's imagination about Vietnam. All the things you think were true about Vietnam were true right there in the rung sat. They might not have been true if you were, for example, in the central highlands, you would never have seen a mud flat or a jungle because, Hey, highlands, right? So the specific locations, you're going to be able to get a lot of very specific sense data and battlefield data that even your military players will not have had because guess what? No mud flats in Afghanistan, very few of them in Iraq and none in the American deployment area that I know of. So that I think is a place where you can sort of begin to meet them on level ground, right? Right. And now one of the big differentiators between uh, more recent conflicts in Vietnam is that Vietnam was a conscript army and right. uh, many of the people uh, didn't want to be there and the uh, level of uh, substance consumption and general uh, misbehavior and lack of military discipline was of course quite uh, famous in that conflict or at least it's um, famous in the uh, mythic version of it at any rate um, and so that is uh, now is that something you can still play up if they are playing special forces units or are the cultures of special forces less dissimilar than uh, the infantry of uh, Vietnam and the infantry of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan? By and large, you did not get drafted into Ranger school. You did not get drafted into Marine recon. I don't say no draftee was ever put into Mac V SOG, but the nature of the, of the deployment meant that a lot of it would fall on various special forces units. And even if you were drafted, you then volunteered for ranger training or volunteered for one of the special forces units. And then you had to go through the, the nightmarish um, uh, process that was high impact military training before we understood, you know, anything about sports medicine, say what you want about pro football. It has taught us a lot about how bodies can be trained up well. And that knowledge has been applied in recent wars and was not applied uh, very strenuously in, in Vietnam. That was basically World War II level commando training. But the sort of checked out, you know, uh, counting down the days, weed smoking, heroin using guy is not going to be 
in uh, your unit in a, in a special forces unit, unless some very unusual circumstance has, has left you with a guy like that. I, I, in my experience, in my, in my experience, in my reading, uh, when people in special forces break down, they don't break down that direction. They break down in a lot of other very unpleasant directions, but the sort of, um, uh, drafty checkout drug using direction is not usually the direction that they go in. But you could certainly have a scenario where the player characters have to deal with a lead a group of people like that yes, and very that much so. becomes something that's outside the experience of the the players right. and uh can provide a bit of meta frustration to them even when you, you know you'll say something and they'll be like that would never happen it's like well guess what you're leading a bunch of civilian drafty guys who have my attitude towards being stuck in a war which is no thank you sir so good luck with that uh, you're you're leading a bunch of your gms through uh <laughs> through a through an ambush zone uh see how that works out um I, I i don't think that i would frame it as directly confrontational between you and the players because that's never good jamming in my book but uh you can certainly frame it as a challenge for them to overcome and a way in which you can get your civilian yayas out uh on npcs at least without giving your players justified eye-rolling experience. And, of course, uh, even if they their Special Forces characters are not uh, affected by the uh, malaise of being a, a drafty and the access to heroin, then we have the mythos. Right. Uh, and that is sort of your uh, your substitute, your, your bearable metaphor uh, for the psychic dislocation of being uh, in war. And so, uh, in addition to picking out things about Vietnam that differ sharply from the experience of your players, even though they're military. The other thing to do is to look at ways that exposure to the mythos and the activities of its monsters and, uh, and gods can uh, completely change what it is that you're doing. Because of course uh, the whole point of staging a realistic seeming uh, military scene is then to pull the rug out from under the players uh, and have uh, everything that, is uh, that they know and is useful to them uh, thrown out the window. And now uh, they're screaming bat brain things hurtling at them. Yeah. I mean, the, um, uh, the nature of the nightmares in fall of Delta green in the mythos and in Vietnam are designedly similar. The, the degree of dislocation, the degree of alienation, the degree of, you know, simple shock at something you've never wanted to see in your life happening against your will even if you volunteered for, you know, a uh, ranger school, you didn't volunteer for that. And that is the, uh, the, the great leveler, uh, in, in terms of the experience. And the trick, I think with that, especially if you have, and this is true of all players who might have trauma or might have trigger areas is that if you've got a player who has a legitimate PTSD, they've gone through combat or whatever, you want to make sure uh, with that player that you have an X card or a checkout or some kind of system by which they don't get so excited pursuing phony trauma that they accidentally step on uh, the landmine of their own actual trauma. And everyone is different. Every military experience is different. Even people who were in the same, you know, platoon in the same war come out of it in vastly different ways. But like all things, talk to your players and say, this is set in a war. You guys were in a war. Are there no-go areas? Are there things that we do not want to play? And it may just be they don't want to play, 
games involving U.S. troops committing atrocities. And that could be from a uh, an escapist uh, ideological perspective, or it could be from a this is not a memory road I want to walk down perspective or whatever it is. And uh, they may not even want to play with the communist troops committing atrocities. All atrocities have to be alien and impossible so that they're not going to be the, the sort of thing they might or might not have encountered in genuine military service. And this is the sort of thing that you want to be sure of. Again, with any bunch of players, you want to say, if you've got a bunch of um, uh, female players, you might want to just double check if you're going to be touching on any sort of... Uh, childbirth or rape horror in your game you would want to very 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 gingerly approach that ideally out of game and say these are potential things that will come up because this is a horror game what's taboo for you and uh military experience uh in addition to being a lot of other things uh including vitally necessary is <laughs> extraordinarily bad which is why or can be extraordinarily bad, which is why most of us don't do it now. Right. Uh, well, once we've uh, reminded uh, everyone uh, once again of the importance of actually getting real buy-in from everybody before doing anything, I think it's uh, everyone has buy-in uh, for us ending this segment and moving. Uh, and I think you hear the sound of uh, trucks uh, up ahead. We, we better go check this out. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Balapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. Sound of teletype, chattering, gunshot, off. This is Crime Blotter. 
And today on Crime Blotter, beloved Patreon backer Dan O'Hanlon asks, Can you please discuss the recent Toronto tow truck turf wars? If this happened in my hometown of Chicago, he said, flexing his shoulders, I wouldn't blink. <laughs> but Toronto? Seriously? And I want to foreground this by saying that if in Chicago you see the words tow truck and in a criminal surrounding, your immediate assumption is unlicensed tow truck stealing cars. And that happens a lot in Chicago. That is our tow truck crime syndicates are tow trucks that may or may not be owned by gangs, but are certainly owned by people with iffy licenses showing up at crime scenes taking your the car away, and then holding it hostage. And that is the Chicago version of tow truck crime. But I'm my understanding, Robin, is that Toronto has taken this to a new and exciting level. So, Well, so first of all, of course, Toronto doesn't have zero crime. It just has way less crime than comparable American cities. Yeah. And the tow truck turf war shows a level of uh, criminal organization and sophistication and has a lot of tentacles uh, into a lot of things. And so over the last 18 months, there have been four people murdered, assassinated, plus a bunch of shootings, scores of arsons. Uh, a task force has been convened by the province uh, to uh, crack down on this. And uh, recently, uh, Constable Ronald Joseph, a longtime uh, a Toronto police constable, has been charged with breach of trust, secret commissions, which is uh, taking money uh, apart from your duties, fraud, commission of offense for a criminal organization, and participating in the activities of a criminal organization. Uh, and also uh, 10 employees of various tow truck companies uh, were charged uh, in that same uh, uh, group of uh, charges in uh, York region, which is covers one of the exurban areas in the, the GTA, the greater Toronto area. Uh, there's a separate op called Project Platinum, and they arrested 20 plus people. They laid 200 charges. Uh, in that case, all employees of uh, tow truck companies, and they uh, seized a mini arsenal of weapons uh, and a cache of street drugs. More recently, it's come to uh, attention that five more unnamed police officers have been suspended as part of this broader investigation. So not only is this an organized crime story, but as is often the case with uh, lucrative criminal activities, it's a police corruption problem. And so the crime being committed here is not as in the case of Chicago of uh, using tow trucks to steal cars, but rather there is a an intense market for insurance fraud. And uh, what you uh, want to have uh, in order to commit insurance fraud is an actual accident that occurred, or perhaps one that you staged, but an actual one is even better. And the contact information of the person who was in that accident. And mm -hmm. so what happens is when there's news of an accident, uh, tow truck drivers will rush uh, to the scene. And in fact, the whole uh, criminal investigation started as an investigation into the theft of uh, encrypted police radios. And uh, it turned out that they had uh, somehow by mysterious means, i.e. corrupt cops sold them uh, to these uh, illicit towing operations First of all, as has been the case in Toronto for years, that there are more tow trucks in operation than there are accidents. And I can only assume that this has been <laughs> exacerbated 
uh, by it was a it was a, it was the foolish Tim Hortons uh, free tow truck with every uh, two dozen crawlers promotion. That yes, they had. the the, uh, the tow truck industry is not well licensed, uh, <laughs> and so you can just have a tow truck, and uh, you, there's some sort of pro forma thing, but there's no proper control of the number of tow trucks so that they match the number of the the, the demand for tow trucks. So uh, our taxi industry is well regulated, right? We have the the correct number of cars to to riders and you can actually hail a cab on the street and uh, although people use uber and and the like you don't really need it here because our our uh, we actually have good cab regulations tow trucks different story so even back in the day uh tow truck operators would peel it as soon as they knew there was an accident in order to be the first to arrive on the scene and get the work of towing that car and even just mm-hmm. the legal work uh, was uh, fiercely fought over. I remember years ago being uh, at the scene of a, a sort of a fender bender, or more than that, I guess, because it disabled two cars and they needed to be towed. And the tow truck operators were ready to fight physically each other for the right to tow that car, even though the cops were on the scene. <laughs> so <laughs> the competition has always been stiff. But since then, uh, this has been uh, honed uh, into a whole lucrative uh, area of uh, of crime. And so it appears that the sort of legacy organized crime or a group in this uh, particular sphere uh, was the Hells Angels. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the Hells Angels is a big force in organized crime, uh, even more so uh, in the rest of the province than in the GTA, where they sort of have to divide up the old line responsibilities with the Sicilian uh, or Calabrian mobs. But it makes sense that as uh, people who love vehicles and garages, that they would uh, innovate in the area of of truck-related fraud and crime. Mm -hmm. And so they, I think, pioneered this. And and so what they do is once they get the information, they then run insurance scams, billing insurance companies for physiotherapy, body shop work, car rentals, and the motorists involved, whose insurance companies are being billed out the wazoo for all of these non-existent services, you might not even know that your insurance company is being milked by uh, the Hell's Angels uh, because you got a tow truck, uh, came and picked your car up and took it to the body mm-hmm. shop. And they probably right. took it to guess whose body shop it was, a Hell's Angels affiliated one. Well, it turns out that other newer, unspecified in news reports so far groups have uh, been attempting to muscle in on this area. The, the Hells Angels figured out how to do it, and uh, and now uh, other groups are trying to uh, cut in. So Probably Lord Humongous among them. Yes. Uh, so on December 24th, 2018, a uh, tow employee named uh, Sohail Rafipur was uh, gunned down outside of his home in a quiet residential neighborhood. And uh, the alleged hitters... Uh, who uh, were arrested in charge were uh, Corey Chung, who's 24, and Jessica Gortich, who is 20. So these do not sound like the names or ages of these sorts of hardcore organized crime people you would expect to be. Yeah, the, 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 the hitters were identified as Corey and Jessica. Sounds like the worst Disney movie ever. Uh, well, that's, that's, uh, that's Canada's... Uh, a multicultural mosaic at, at work right. there. Two uh, employees of tow truck companies were killed execution style in January of 2019 and April of 2019. And the later case was of uh, a driver named Lawrence Taylor Garton. And he 
was shot to death, apparently, for refusing to give up his corner, that he had this one particular spot that he staked out and parked on that was 20 minutes from his home, and he was a veteran tow truck driver, and obviously someone else said, you know, we'd like one of our guys to be parked in your corner, and he presumably said no, and so he was uh, murdered, and there was no uh, hitter in that uh, case. And just uh, on May 14th of this year, a fourth driver uh, was shot in his truck, and this person sitting in the truck with him was also shot and critically injured, although he did not die. And in that case, underage uh, shooters were charged. So a 15 and 17-year-old have been uh, charged with that. Which which implies to me, Robin, that these uh, the underage element of it implies that it is now turning into a drug war that is being fought over tow trucks. I mean, in, in Chicago, if you see underage, uh, shooters, you know that it's part of gangs and gangs by and large in Chicago are drug driven, if not drug related. Is that what it seems to be that the, the tow truck? Well, there's wars... definitely a drug aspect to it. Yeah. Uh, because a big cache of drugs were seized on one of the uh, raids that started with the stolen police radios. And mm-hmm. also apparently it turns out that, uh, tow truck drivers, are the sorts of people that you want to recruit if you're in organized crime because they spend a lot of time sitting around. Uh, they work in a shady industry and therefore uh, you can get them involved running various side hustles. So uh, that can be drugs, as you mentioned, or car theft, as you mentioned, or uh, pimping, uh, money laundering, loan sharking, um, which suggests that if you're running a, a contemporary a game and you have your streetwise ability and you want to uh, hook up with the mob and talk to somebody, find your nearest tow truck driver. Uh, he may mm-hmm. be the guy. But at any rate, the drivers now apparently are all driving around uh, strapped. They're carrying uh, firearms, which of course is uh, a no-no up here. Highly discouraged. That's another Tim Hortons uh, promotion that went wrong. Bring in your tow truck, get a gun and a box of uh, Bavarian cream to go. The old Pistol and a crawler promotion, yep. Uh, yep. roll up the rim for ammunition. Um, mm-hmm. And this is not just a Toronto thing. Three on, uh, Ottawa cops were busted in April for being involved in a similar scan in uh, Ottawa, in our nation's capital, uh, which if, if you think it's weird to think that this is happening in Toronto, it's even weirder in Ottawa, which yeah. is basically a quiet small town vibe with uh federal government offices and uh, yeah it's like it's like a state capital in america by and large just normal town oh and look there's the capitol building yeah yeah very much so um and montreal which of course is remains our leader in organized crime has already been through the process of having their commission about tow truck related crime and uh, cracking down on it so it it started its crackdown in 2017 um so uh it would surprise me if this is not, if this is only a Canadian thing. It seems mm-hmm. like that would yeah. also make be happening in American cities, but probably just that the level of uh, uh, violence associated with uh, the the drug war is so great that this is probably completely below anybody's radar. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it was four killings in eighteen months. I looked it up. Toronto has had seventy nine homicides in twenty nineteen. Uh, for comparison, Chicago had six and a half times that number of homicides in a city about the same size. So yeah, I, I think you could have a four, a four killing spree that does not even appear on the, you know, newspapers, much less on the, uh, in the cops radar, um, as a, as a thing. And if the cops are part of it as they were in Toronto and one assumes are anywhere that there's a, 
a scrambled police radio, as opposed to just the ability to tap into the police scanner and listen regardless, which is what we have in most American cities, uh, then you are going to wind up with some sort of, of, of similar scam happening. So you, you could certainly, regardless of where your game is set, it doesn't have to be in Canada for this sort of chicanery to be going on. Again, I think most illicit tow truckery in Chicago is just a convenient way to steal cars. Uh, that is 90% of tow truck related crime, uh, as I understand it in, uh, the greatest city in the world. But again, you can, you can certainly conceive of towns. I don't know if like New York City has that many tow trucks just because they have fewer cars per person and also fewer places to put them. But maybe Staten Island is where all the tow truck gangs hang out and wait to, to ride the ferry into the city. No, it just does. The geography doesn't really work there. Yeah. I, I guess what you need is a big, a big time commuter town, right? Because yeah, right. you need people with ins- with insurance mm-hmm. to get into accidents. So it, they have to be relatively affluent people driving, uh, you know, commuting to work or, or around the city or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if they don't have insurance, uh, the, the scam doesn't work. Uh, and so, so someone assumes New Jersey is lousy with tow truck uh, related crime. Then as people are leaving the city and driving back to their houses, um, they're being predated upon by these guys, right? Yeah, and uh, you know it would have to be places, you know, where probably the uh, the physics they might be able to get a certain amount of stuff even from uh, because that would have to be people who have uh, other uh, healthcare on top of the already relatively generous single payer government healthcare in order to mm-hmm. you know rack up a ton of physiotherapy fees and stuff. So that right. may be the the ingredients that uh, make that work in, in some places and, and not others. So what's the, what's the murder clearance rate these days in Chicago? Oh, I, th- I think a lot of that depends on who you ask, uh, because there was a big scandal, which of course nothing was done about, uh, two or three years ago where they went and they sort of followed a bunch of bodies through the, uh, Chicago medical examiner system. And a lot of very obvious homicides were being classed as non homicide deaths to keep the clearance rate up. And so, According to the police department, it's 53% now, which is not good. Uh, Washington DC's, uh, was famously being mocked a couple of years ago for being 10%. Uh, but in 2016, uh, the clearance rate was only 29%. And between 2016 and now came that report that I told you about. So it may not be that they're clearing any more homicides. They're just not classifying as many dead people. Yes, because in statistics as so many other things, as we've yeah. learned, police don't always tell the truth. Um, it's odd, isn't it, that people whose that jobs weird. are dependent on a statistical output, but have control over the statistical input? Hmm, wild. Highly Who could have seen that coming? I don't yeah. know, literally anyone. Um, but anyway, uh, Toronto's clearance rate for many years was uh, was 80%, but it has dropped. It has dropped to perhaps as low as 40, and that is a function of are escalating drug war here. And uh, there was just a big uh, drug bust today. Uh, the cops happily announced arresting a bunch of people and seizing their weapons and seizing their drugs. But of course, the ironic thing is, is that when you roll up a street gang, it's not like the demand for illicit drugs then no. zeroes out. <laughs> it's the next crop of even more inexperienced, violent drug uh, slingers uh, shows up and escalates the uh, the war and you, it creates a power Which is vacuum. Precisely what happened in Chicago when they 
uh, decapitated the Elrukin gang that had basically dominated the South Side and put Jeff Fort into federal prison, the guy who ran it, uh, it turns out all the gangs that he had been sort of taking his piece of decided they would be the next Elrukins and started a massive gang war that basically, I, I want to say it, it, it hasn't ended, but it is certainly continued like like many brush fire wars do just forever because there's a natural resource to be tapped and someone with guns is going to tap it yeah the the effects of taking out the the kingpin uh are not necessarily all salutary i mean you should take out kingpins i don't this is not a pro kingpin show unless they're patreon backers in which case thanks kingpins (laughs) but be prepared for the fact that that will not actually end uh, the amount of people driving around shooting each other in uh, your in your. I was uh, under the impression though that basically the the Jeff Fort of Toronto was your beloved former mayor Rob Ford, and when he left the picture, is that when everyone came out of the woodwork and said, "I want to be the next Rob Ford," and it's all basically <laughs> acquaintances of the mayor. Uh, well, okay, so the the alleged dealer it's not was not Rob, but our current premier uh, Doug. Doug. And well, he was he was just a if you believe the stories and I've talked to people who, who <laughs> claim to have personal experience of them that he was sort of a mid level uh, college hash dealer. Oh, okay. uh, he was not he was not the literal kingpin as in the Marvel Comics uh, universe. Right. Um, an interesting crime novel surely will be written about this particular period because uh, the border has been sealed uh, between the U.S. and Canada since. Uh, the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 uh, lockdown. Therefore, the supply of drugs coming over the border has dried up. And therefore, the amount of uh, driving around, if you're a criminal tow truck driver uh, looking for the next accident, has also radically decreased. So there, mm-hmm. there are fewer accidents and fewer drugs on the street and more people uh, competing for that money. So that they're means- like the they're like the New York City rats that are all starving to death because there were there was no uh, outside eating for a while. Yes, and the, and the cockroaches that are moving out of the sewers where there's no food into apartment buildings, so they're working from home as well. As so, mm-hmm. a recent uh, tweet uh, by uh, someone who's uh, experiencing that uh, revealed. Uh, so at any rate, I think I think we're now wildly digressing. Uh, we all know what happens on this podcast when we wildly digress. After having talked for 15 or more minutes. And, <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, as opposed to the other wild digressions. Both, both need to be true. <laughs> Wait a minute, we're digressing about digressing. Let's get to yes. it in the next segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast out of the impound lot by throwing in with such stalwart Patreon backers as... Michael Curtis. Dave Stecco. James Stewart. Tom Abella. And Scott Stefanski. The chatter of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon being poured into a jelly jar, welcome us once more to that most nameless of huts where we learn how to write good. And today, speaking of nameless, we're talking about the effects of names on secondary world fiction. So you've got a character uh, striding the land that you've mapped out, just like Professor Tolkien did. And, uh, oh, he bangs his heel. He's hurt his Achilles tendon. Oh, he hasn't. Achilles didn't exist in your imaginary world. He's banged that other tendon that now you have to describe because it's still an important tendon. Yeah. What do you oh, do, Robin? He, someone cut his legless tendon. That doesn't right. help us at all. It does not help. And then, and then it's, it's worse. He gets, he gets the, 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 the Lembus, uh, stuck in his, in, oh, not in his Adam's apple, Robin. He can't, that can't happen. Yeah. He must have some other apples. A lump just doesn't do it. No, no. His pharyngeal lump of, uh, Morgoth. Morgoth's lump is not going to make it happen. Robin, what do we do? What do we do about uh, Herculean tasks, Cyclopean architecture, Sisyphean tasks, tantalizing food? Um, what do we do about German chocolate cake, which is a double tap because it's not, it sounds like it should be named after Germany, which doesn't exist. It's actually named after Sam German, who also didn't exist. Robin, do they have atlases in your world? Robin, are, are days halcyon? You're, you're running through my entire point form list here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, <laughs> Robin. You're blowing my entire list all in one uh, all in one go here. So the question is, what do you uh, do you say? First of all, one thing you can go is, well, this is, of course, if this is happening in a secondary world, no one is talking English anyway. If it's in the first person, uh, this is clearly being translated uh, from whatever language it is in the secondary world, uh, Falugian or Klingon or whatever it is, it's being translated. Cinderin, Robin, from Cinderin, the most beautiful language. Uh, in, into English. And so you can just say, well, I'm just going to say Adam's apple because that's the term. And the, as we've already established, pharyngeal lump is weird. Yes. I'm not going to do that. And uh, that's one way to do it. And I think it depends on the, the degree to which the mythological otherness of the world uh, is important factors into that decision. So that if it's a secondary world where mythology is not interesting and doesn't really come into what you're doing. This uh, is all secondary worlds, by the way. <laughs> um, well, there's lots of secondary world novels where the, what the mythology is matters. And then some of them, yes, it where it's important, but still somehow not interesting. Uh, well, it's a separate yeah. point. But if, for example, your secondary world is all about interacting with the gods and heroes, Achilles tendon will stand out and seem weird. And a player or rather a reader uh, might notice that. Or, you know, if uh, the characters are the legendary heroes who somewhat resemble the uh, the Greek heroes of yore, but have all been renamed and have green skin and laser guns. Mentioning the Achilles tendon is going to uh, stand out. So even if you have the premise, uh, yes, this is a translation. Still, you do not want the reader to bounce off anything and start thinking about stuff uh, that they shouldn't be thinking about 
outside of the frame of reference that you're creating. And, so, and, and Professor Tolkien famously went more than the extra mile to make sure that Middle Earth uh, in the in Lord of the Rings, the language was all potentially drawn from Sindarin, from Elven. And he went so far as to not use Latin at roots when he could find an Anglo-Saxon root that would fit the language better or would coin uh, words to make them sound like they came from Elven roots and then bury them deep in, in the land. I mean, you can... Uh, you can, and indeed many, many people have done nothing but study language use in the Lord of the Rings as the ultimate case of caring about this stuff. And I guess the question as a writer is, how ultimate do you want to be, given that you are not being paid by Oxford University to think about language all day? Yes. Do you want to generate hundreds of thousands of words of background document for your actual giant novel? Um, and so, ultimately, like any word choice. Uh, another uh, analogy is to words that sound too modern or whose recent connotations have changed so that they seem modern. So using the word heinous uh, during the heyday of uh, Bill and Ted, uh, which may be returning soon, yeah, cross fingers, totally changes the flavor of that word. And so even though that is not a new word, it was altered into seeming slangy with a different meaning for a while. And so do you use heinous or not? And so when you're making these decisions, um, I would, for example, pause it. Let's return back to that list you rattled through. Herculean, I think to me, uh, if you're writing in a secondary world where there uh, was never a Hercules uh, in in fact or, or fable, is very specific and the reader will uh, bounce off of that. But if you're talking about a Cyclopean monument or even a cyclops, a one-eyed uh, creature, even though both of those things are from Greek mythology, one of them seems to, to jump out more than the other. I think it's because one of them seems more generic. I mean, you can imagine, uh, and in fact, the Greeks did imagine, a bunch of different cyclopses so that it becomes a more generic term than something named specifically after this specific guy, Hercules. So you can imagine, yeah, there's one-eyed giants in our fantasy land, and... We will call them cyclopses because it's faster than saying one-eyed giant every time and cooler, frankly. Right. And then there's also the question of how apparent it is to the reader that a word derives from a specific cultural reference. So a Sisyphean task makes you think of Sisyphus uh, from Greek myth, and you probably don't want to uh, use that, but that something has a tantalizing aroma, even though that word derives from the myth of Tantalus that is used more, that it feels more generic, uh, even though it isn't. And so it is unlikely that a reader, when you're writing about the, the tantalizing aroma of the soup in the spaceport in the galaxy far, far away, is going to go, wait a minute, that's a reference to the Greek myth of Tantalus. They're not going to think that. And so right. one is a, a no-go and the other is a go. And it, that might just be a capital letter thing, because Sisyphean is capitalized usually. Uh, not always, but usually. And uh, tantalizing is never capitalized, even though it's named after, as you say, a, a king. Right. So the, the the question is, is it that uh, capital letters are where we keep a lookout? Well, I mean, I can, I can imagine that exactly, right? So do, do you have an atlas in your secondary world? Uh, do people think of atlases as being named after 
the the Titan Atlas who held the world on his shoulder? Well, I think most people don't, even though it's the derivation is clear. And as soon as someone tells you about that, you instantly realize that. So perhaps this this segment is doing the devil's work, and then it will cause people to question things they haven't questioned before. <laughs> oh, oh no, Robin! One of our segments is doing the devil's work. Well, yes. it had to happen after four hundred shows. One of them would do the devil's work. None For example, of the cloth which is derived from Clotho, the fate, uh, is something that you never think about. And you're not going to, nobody, not even Tolkien, is going to go and change the word cloth to something well, I, I, made up I, I in Sindarin. Technically, Clotho's name and cloth come from the same root. I don't think it was named after the thing Clotho made. I think Clotho being the uh, one of the three seamstresses in the fates... She, she takes her name after because she's the one who spins out the thread. So Clotho just means like the, the spinner. Right. Well, let, let's not go down the etymology mysteries because, of course, uh, they're all un, unsolvable. And fun. Right. <laughs> Sounds exactly like our kind of thing, Robin. <laughs> well, uh, okay. I will not go down those roads and you can go down them all you want. Halcyon, yes, I can. of course, is specifically uh, from Greek mythology. Uh, mm -hmm. Some ones you might not be thinking of, uh, chronology, chronos, hypnosis, uh, named after hypnos, but a thing that came along later. So is something whose scientific name or uh, quasi-scientific name in this case comes uh, from a, a cultural reference? Is that something you have to mess with? A lycanthrope, mentor, uh, most famously, which uh, w was a proper name. And uh, there's no such thing as mentee, because mentor is like a, the name of a person. If your character is a narcissist, can you call your character a narcissist in a galaxy far, far away? Then, of course, we come to place names. So there's lots of things uh, that are named after places. Foods that are named after places, are you can mostly get around that, right? So instead of champagne, they're uh, drinking sparkling wine. Well, as we know, unless it comes from the champagne region of Gondor, it just is sparkling wine. Exactly right. right. Uh, Parmesan cheese. Uh, you can just say, uh, you know, hard grated cheese. You can usually get mm -hmm. away with stuff like that. Uh, however, you may think that sherry is generic, whereas that's named after the Spanish town of Jerez. There are all sorts of things that are named after place names. A duffel bag is from the town of Duffel. So if your readers know that, you might want to not have your uh, hobbits and, uh, and Vulcans lugging around a duffel bag. Um, certain diseases are named after places. So Lyme disease is named after the town of Lyme. Norovirus is named after Norwalk, it turns out. And of course, uh, the term lesbian is named after the, the Isle of Lesbos. And uh, a limousine and marathon and chihuahua, those are all uh, words that are named after places. And uh, I, I think uh, that's a great reason not to have chihuahuas in your fiction. Yeah. That's Just in really general. One of many reasons. Yes. You can have an alternate history in which uh, all the yappy, annoying dogs are called sonoras, for example. That'd be fun. And uh, there's the whole question of if you're uh, writing a science fiction world that has no uh, connection to Earth, uh, as is sometimes done, uh, what do you do with all the scientific terms that have specific cultural references, not just to uh, mythological figures with thorium and helium, uh, but also uh, there are places named, uh, sorry, elements named after places. So Darm, Darmstadtian, which comes straight from Darmstadt, mm -hmm. or uh, ones that are named after a scientist. Uh, Copernicium and Mendelavium. Uh, do you 
rename all of those elements or do you just make sure you never refer to them? Yeah. You just have general transuranic. Oh, named after a god. Sorry, can't say transuranic. But uh, yeah, the I mean, in blanket terms, this is why you should never write a secondary world fantasy because it's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> It took you all this time to get there. Well, I figured I wanted... I, I, I got yelled at for jumping ahead last time, so yeah. I'm just sticking here. Um, science fiction is a weird case because you can imagine, for example, if you set your... Uh, not just a galaxy long, long ago and far, far away, but even a one that is a legitimate forecast from Earth, that it's just 4,000 AD or 90,000 AD, but people still have Adam's apples? Really? That... That story is stuck around that long. I mean, we, we all hope it will, certainly. We all hope that people in 90,000 AD are all reading the Bible and calling it 90,000 AD. But Yeah, it could be, you could have your characters go, oh, I got hit in the Adam's apple. Oh, that reminds me. Do you know why it's called that? I have no idea. I have I've no been idea. hit in the Adam's apple. But I've been hit there. <laughs> a little help? No, seriously, this etymology uh, uh, chip is very interesting. I'm learning so much. And, and there is the question of to what extent do various modern references that you're putting in in order to uh, resonate with a modern audience. After all, that's who you're writing it for. To what extent are those going to start sounding weird or are you doing things to be thuddingly ironic? Like when you say Hitler, he was an obscure tribal chieftain, wasn't he? That kind of nonsense. And if, if anyone cares about Hitler, they're going to have plenty of genocides between now and uh, 4,000 AD to, to do a better example of. So, all of these, all this cultural unpacking, you have to make the same sorts of decisions in terms of a science fictional future as to what is legitimately still going to be a word. And and again, you can look at the history of English, for example, and say, well, all the words are going to be changed after 2000 years. It's going to be a completely unrecognizable dialogue. And again, yeah, from unless which you're, you were translating into English. <laughs> right, exactly. And unless you're, you know, writing um, uh, Ridley Walker or something. You're, you're not going to write it in, in future weird dialect. You're going to write it in normal people English so that you can actually uh, get people to, to read it, right? Then that question comes about because you can Im imagine making the case that, say, the duffel bag stays the duffel bag, even in space, because it's a good, convenient thing to have, and it's a good, convenient word, and no one cares about the town of Duffel in Germany. But the fourth, fifth, nineteenth time that someone eats German chocolate cake in space, you're like, Really? That's still what it's called? German chocolate cake? Not coconut chocolate yes. cake or literally anything else? Peach Melba? We're still eating peach Melba in space. Why would they eat peach Melba on Earth, for God's sake? It's terrible. But yeah, the uh, all those questions about making something intelligible to the reader or player versus legitimately setting things in a, a, either a different uh, secondary world or a world so far in the future that it might as well be a secondary world. I think at, at the table, at least, you can say, don't sweat it. Or if someone says, do they really call it German chocolate cake? You can say, no, actually, they call it long, stupid elf name you've just made up. And, you know, then that person <laughs> aren't, has been... Aren't you glad you asked? Or, or th that person has been silenced. It's yes. like, you, you legitimately, you're playing Lord of the Rings. You're still going to the footnotes. What is wrong with you, sir? What is wrong with you? <laughs> well, they, they found out they were playing Lord of the Rings. That's, that's right. what happened. So right there, a, a footnote war is about to start. Well, if we're up, uh, adding footnotes uh, to our segments at this point, I think it's time for us to, uh, before we go from the asterisks and the double asterisks and the dagger to whatever comes after that, it's time for us to uh, rush toward our final segment.
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. What's more may gather in that most ill-defined of huts, the hut, uh, where uh, weird mysteries that don't fit in other more defined categories uh, sit, but also sitting in that hut. Oh, over in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're sipping kombuchas and they're, uh, as usual, uh, selling, uh, I think, quite frankly, somewhat loose stories about the reptoids. Uh, but if we look out the window, uh, there we see the alien big cat screaming out in the moor. And that tells us that we are in the Elliptony hut. And this time around, esteemed patron backer Rolf Bergstrom wants to hear about Umwauma. Uh, and this, of course, is the very strange uh, interstellar object that uh, entered our solar system and was discovered on uh, the 19th of October, uh, 2017. And it was discovered by uh, Robert Warrick at the Haleakala Observatory in Hawaii because there just aren't enough hard-to-pronounce words <laughs> in this introduction. You, you should just be glad his name is Warrick. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, Ken, as the, uh, the, the master of the Liptons, uh, you've been looking into the significance of this, uh, a weird, uh, celestial object, which of course we uh, can't at all imagine is somehow, uh, uh, sinister and influencing us and perhaps full of fungi from Yogoth. But, oh, look, I'm the one jumping the gun. Ken, what do we need to know about this object? All right. We need to know about this object that first of all, it's, it's now no longer the only extrasolar object, interstellar object to enter uh, our telescopes. Another one showed up in 2019. Its name is Borisov, which is much easier, and it just looks like a big dumb comet. So people at the, at the time when Umwaba showed up and they were all like, this is insane. This is nuts. This looks weird. And everyone's like, that's just because it's interstellar. You're just being a bigot. And then the next interstellar thing showed up and it looked like every other chunk of space goof. And so Borisov, while we're all glad to see Borisov, did not make this problem any easier. And unusually, I did a little tangential searching. And aside from a creationist website using Umwauma to clown on real astronomy, I did not find a lot of crazy people talking about Umwauma. And I think this goes to my larger general point that most elliptonists are lazy and wait for another brilliant pioneering genius. The, the great, the great man, great woman theory 
holds so much truer in elliptony than it does in other sciences. You wait for Madame Blavatsky to put things together or Charles Fort to pull them all into a box, you know, even a, a hack like Charles Berlitz. You, 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 someone else has to do all the work. You're just sitting there. You could be talking about this crazy extraterrestrial spindle and or pancake that zoomed through the um, solar system, but no. You're just waiting around, waiting for me to do it. So here we are. Right. Because at the risk of getting into a much broader discussion, there is a big psychological difference between the person who is waiting to have weirdness explained to them in a way that gratifies their belief system and the person who does all of the work of systematizing a new thing. And I Mm -hmm. guess the incentive for that first person is the lucrative book contract for nonsense. Exactly. Uh, So it does seem... Like some budding von Daniken uh, must surely be out there uh, creating a, a document. I mean, it's only been, you know, since October 2017. So uh, perhaps there's a whole bunch of people who are just waiting for their books to be published by Llewellyn. Yeah, I mean, we can we can but hope that that the next crazy look to the skies person has has umwamed themselves into a into a tizzy already. But I was I was frankly appalled that the the community at large, the Eleptonic community at large, was napping on this because a real honest to god astronomer, not just a normal astronomer, but the head, the department chair of astronomy at Harvard University, easily one of the top universities in the eastern Massachusetts area, Robin. Harvard University, Department of Astronomy Chair Abraham Loeb went out when it was discovered and said, this looks like a spaceship. And you know what? He was mocked and ridiculed, Robin. Can you believe it? Can you believe that they would mock an astronomer? I can't believe it. But uh, he did have, as is a real scientist's way, a number of reasons for his argument, as opposed to just, it would be amazing. And uh, the guys that discovered it did think about naming it Rama after the Arthur C. Clarke novel Rendezvous with Rama, in which a giant extra solar object shows up and it's a giant spaceship. Right, but that would have been easy to say. It would have been easy to say. The Hawaiian uh, astronomy people were like, nope, you discovered here has to be a Hawaiian word. So then, and again, Umwama is a cool word. I don't want to diss on that. It means messenger from the distant past or messenger from outside, right? It's like... That's also leaning pretty heavily into uh, there's aliens on board. Yeah, it, it very much. They they left themselves open. They were not... They were canny folks, the folks at the observatory, the, the, the fellows. I think they're all working on their pitches to Llewellyn. I think they all are and should be, frankly. But anyway, Harvard Astronomy Department Chair Abraham Loeb gives a lot of reasons that Umwama is not just a regular old space rock. For example... Because it has shown up at all, he ran the numbers and said, this implies, uh, because it's so teeny, it just showed up as like one pixel on the, on the telescope. Uh, it implies there should be a lot more space rocks. If, if the first one we see is this teeny little thing, where are all the other ones? There should be eight times, at least two times, maybe eight times as many space rocks coming after us. All right, we just had a telescope good enough to see one, but why did it see one so teeny? Why haven't we seen big ones? So that implies that it's not a natural asteroid. Also, it moves at what is called the local standard rest, uh, which is the s- standard speed that if you average all of the stars in the sky is sort of the fixed stars are moving at. If something's moving at low standard rest or local standard rest, it implies, says Abraham Loeb, this is not me, that it is ideal camouflage for an alien probe. 
And the words ideal camouflage literally appear in his paper. I'm so happy for <laughs> Abraham Loeb. And this, it would be a relatively slow object because obviously uh, most things would be faster than local standard rest, especially once they're zipping into our solar system. And this is Professor Loeb's next point, which is that it implies, since the star's proper motion was probably much higher than local standard rest, for it to get out of that star's gravitational well, it would have to be moving at very high speed. Again, implying not something natural, that uh, right. there's not a a, a, a sort of uh, accidental gravitational billiard pink that knocks it out, that this is a big screaming deal. Right. And also, the fact that it would be ideally camouflaged implies that there are all sorts of uh, forces and entities out there who, if they spotted a less hidden probe, would attack it and blow it out of the sky. So right. this yeah. implies not only probe senders, but probe interceptors and lots of them. Uh-huh. And, and, and enough of them that you want to make your probe sneaky. Exactly. So the, the probe, having escaped uh, the, the Vogons or whomever with its ideal camouflage, leaving its native solar system at high speed. And I will point out that they've done the math. Uh, first, they said, oh, it came from Vega. If you just track its little arc back in the sky, there's Vega. Problem solved. And then someone said, uh, how long did it take to get there? And someone said, oh, about 600,000 years. And then someone says, did Vega stay there for 600,000 years? Dumbass. We're a real astronomy. <laughs> now, Think that harder. person was mocked. Never mind what they did to yeah. Abraham Lowe. And that, that guy was, mo- he was very mocked. And so they found that it has passed within uh, one parsec of four stars before coming to Earth or coming near Earth, but they don't know that it was very close to any of them. And none of the stars are particularly famous or important stars, unlike Vega, which is awesome. And it should have been from Vega, but it just wasn't. Um, so anyway, I wanted to get that on the, on the record. Back to Dr. Loeb's observations. The analysis of the twinkle of the pixel uh, gives us a rapidly shifting albedo. And that means it's tumbling or spinning or something like that. It's not just changing color, uh, changing reflectivity for no reason. And that implies specific things about its geometry, which is that it has between an eight to one and a six to one ratio between its long axis and its narrow axis. And if you look at virtually every other asteroid or comet or chunk in our solar system, the highest eccentricity you get is about three to one. So that is a very substantial difference. And Dr. Loeb says, again, long, thin cigar shape or uh, ellipsoid pancake shape. Those sound like spaceship designs to me. Uh, uh, uh. And everyone yells at him, but they can't disprove it because that's the math. Uh, It's also 10 times as reflective as other asteroids, given its tiny size and the fact that we still saw it as a pixel. That means that it maybe is covered with Alien metal, Robin. And then the last thing, the killer app, the best thing about it is that as it is zipping through our solar system, it shifts its course. It changes its path. And that is obviously big news because things don't just do that if they're an asteroid. Uh, people used to say, oh, that was cometary outgassing, uh, because comets do that all the time. They get close to the sun and an ice pocket blows up and be- and acts like a little rocket and shoots it off its course a little bit. And that is a normal thing for comets, except Oumuamua is not a comet. It doesn't have a cometary tail. It doesn't have a debris cloud around it. There was uh, no problem with the seeing in any of the pixels around it. They're all blank pixels. So it's not got a trail of dust or a little outgassy atmosphere. 
It's not a comet. And quite frankly, since Dr. Loeb made his pioneering statement, the deniers, the debunkers, the skeptics, the haters, the haters and losers have all said, oh, that was probably outgassing. And someone said, but it's not a comet. That was probably out. There was probably a, a block of ice on Omwama that just outgassed at that point. And I am not going to sit here and tell you Omwama is an alien spacecraft, Robin, because I don't hold a tenured chair of astronomy at uh, a perfectly decent East Coast University. But I am going to say that is a nonsense explanation that just by a miracle, there was a chunk of ice on this asteroid or whatever, and it happened to outgas one time and turn it. That seems ridiculous to me. I think that the notion that on this once in a lifetime thing that is so different from everything we've seen in every other way that, oh, also there was a chunk of ice seems like special pleading to me. Now, again, chunks of ice exist. Chunks of ice even may exist on asteroids, which we have not seen any of, but you can't say never. Um, so who can say? Uh, the most recent math that has been done on a lot of the other problems, the uh, high speed, the eccentricity, is that it was part of a super Earth, right? One of those big super-sized planets that's in the terrestrial, the habitable zone. And we see those in, in lots of exoplanets of super-Earths. Uh, or our super earths. And the theory is that a super earth gets too close to its sun or to a, a big Jovian is torn apart by tidal forces, which would flatten and elongate the piece of rock and also might spin it out at super high speed. And that also would explain the very, the unlikeliness of the thing showing up because you aren't going to get that kind of behavior very often, even in a super earth. Um, this is still special pleading, but it's not quite as crazy as also there was ice, I think, personally. Now, uh, when it turned, did it turn toward us or away from us? Uh, I think it just turned uh, away from a direct path to the sun. Uh, us at that point was still a a, a different thing. So um, it seemed, seemed like it didn't want to melt in the sun is what we're right. It, 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 it turned away from a, its direct approach to, to the sun. So that would almost by definition be away, not toward, I don't know. It might've, you know, I did not actually look into that in terms of, did it lean into its, in, into its turn or not? Uh, but I think it must not have, who can say? So the thing about, uh, Umuamau is then finding a way to connect it to something that uh, characters might be doing since, it's way out uh, in space, all by its lonesome, out near the sun. That's a long ways away. You would have to give the characters a spacecraft to go out and get it. Or uh, you would then, uh, I guess, uh, you could suggest that there's some sort of psychic emanation or, or power that it is exerting on Earth, that it has gotten close enough to send us a bunch of ideas or dreams or something in that after October 2017, that something changes as a result of, of its influence. Right. Yeah. It, it came in from the north of the plane of ecliptic. So from the top of the solar system, if you, if you look at it as a flat disc, um, zoomed through the ecliptic, uh, the sun turned it again and it, uh, passed closer than Mercury to the sun. So it didn't get that far from the sun. And then it zoomed out past uh, the Earth within our orbit, uh, about 15 million miles from Earth, so not that far, uh, in October of 2018, or 2017, rather, and then uh, passed uh, beyond Saturn's orbit in January 2019. So it's moving at, 
at a, at a good clip. It, but it will stay technically within the solar system for a long time because the solar system is very big. It's only going to get past Neptune in 2022. And then there's an Oort cloud and Kuiper belts and all manner of other things for it to zip along. But yeah, by and large, you will need a spaceship to get to it. There is talk about repurposing a probe to go land on it. People are very excited at the possibility of, of doing that, but it would, you know, the, they've already got a job for that probe to do, and they don't necessarily know how they would get the probe to it, because obviously it's already, you know, past Saturn. Um, it, it would be a job of work, especially, uh, you know, if it turns again, then you really are screwed, right? Right. Um, and it would be uh, really fascinating, though, if you got a probe all the way out there and you found out that it basically come here and downloaded all of Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems to have made its little, um, uh, <laughs> that was all it was doing was just, you know, uh, borrowing a, a Netflix login. Um, it, it, uh, it seems to have, uh, made its turn somewhere between Jupiter and Saturn. In case you're curious, that's where it made its shift. So not close to the sun where you would expect again, if it was a chunk of ice, but way out in planetary space. Well, I guess we'll just have to rely on the uh, fungi from Yugoth to send out their probe and find out what's going on. Right. Uh, the uh, other alien cultures are, you know, sending it back to us like, hey, you can't be shooting your probes at us. It's, like, it's not our probe. That's yeah. an act of war. <laughs> not not camouflaged well enough. Uh, well, right. I, I have to say I do kind of like Mwama if it is uh, eccentric and reflective. I, I relate to it in several uh, fronts. Yeah, that's that's true. It's um, uh, we feel a little seen by by the astronomers in that case, and and it is you know all the the NASA artists who normally have to draw boring cloudscapes or something got really excited, and when you you know do a Google image search on it, it looks very cool. Uh, that spindly shape, you know, flying along. You can definitely understand why. Um, you know, I'm sure that the English department also believes that it's a spaceship because it looks cool. And that really is all you need from an astronomical body, isn't it, Robin? Uh, yes. Well, uh, once we've been uh, fulfilled in every way by a strange object uh, out near Jupiter, it's time for us to uh, call this episode to a close. Uh, but we'll be back a mere week from now with a similar basket of nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astragown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from ominous extraterrestrial objects by joining such backers as... Bill Durfee. Jesse Lowe. Alan Wilkins. Graham Will. And Jack Ulick. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Salute the regal presence behind this show with our latest design, Virgil Rex. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>